Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Christopher Ketchum. How are you doing? Hi. Glad to have you here again. And you have, you know, I was, I don't read Harper's all the time, but you had the cover article. And it's a intriguing article with an intriguing person and an intriguing relationship of you with the person. And it's, and there was also the other article, your article about uh, colonialism. And I'd love to talk to you about either or both of these, both the articles, the content. I'm really curious about your involvement of like connecting with McRae and what it was like meeting with him. And then also some of the dialogue in it and not dialogue, but a conversation in it is, I mean, your girlfriend is in it and it seemed like there was a lot of um, testing each other's metal. It seemed like you were really into this, this piece and I'm not even sure where to begin. Like I was thinking like, where do I start with this thing? I want to start with something small, but I'm really curious. What's it like to be on the cover? Was that a big deal? I've been on the cover of Harper's many times. So, Oh, you have? I didn't know. Not a big deal. Not a big deal. Okay. But, but very, it, it was actually a pleasant surprise because the editors didn't even tell me that the article was going to be the cover story. But let me, let me, Let's back up for a second for your your listeners who are most of whom are probably unfamiliar with the article. Let me just give an overview of what it's about. So yeah. it's um, it's called the title is called the Machine Breaker, and uh, the subtitle is Inside the Mind of an Eco Terrorist. But eco terrorist is in quotes because my source, the guy who became who became an eco saboteur, Stephen Plato McRae, was not a terrorist. He was uh, destroying industrial infrastructure because he believes that our that industrial civilization is inherently unsustainable and it needs to be dismantled. So I got to know him in 2016 when he and I were both living in the same little southern Utah village called Escalante. And the night I encountered him was a very bizarre evening. My girlfriend and I were driving into town, slowly motoring into town, you know, in this little village. There was a herd of deer nearby in like a backyard. And suddenly the driver's side window explodes. And it turns out a deer had attacked our car, <laughs> a male, a buck, attacked the car and shattered out the window with his antlers. And we at first thought someone was shooting at us. And we were pretty scared. So we drove to our friend Mark Austin's house. And he has a place right in town there. And lo and behold, Mark Austin was having dinner and drinking wine with this guy, Steve Plato McRae. And that's how I got to meet him. And the conversation, unbeknownst to us, was being recorded by the FBI. The conversation that night that Austin and my girlfriend Viva and myself and a third party, the publisher of the local newspaper, had in Austin's uh, lit, uh, dining room. And for the purposes of the article, I was able to get hold of that transcript and then publish portions of it directly in the piece to give to give readers a sense of how wild and crazy-eyed this McCray guy was simply after you know knowing him for 10 minutes the guy was going on and on about you know chopping the heads off the Koch brothers that's it or, or killing the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, which are both great ideas. I fully support them. But this is a guy I hardly knew. 
And he's launching into these crazy tirades within minutes of our first encounter and clearly sounding a little unhinged. It sounded like you weren't quite like you wanted, is this guy for real or not? Oh yeah, I thought he was just a bullshitter because he then, <laughs> then as we started to drink, we're drinking wine and then tequila and we started to get drunk. He became a little bit looser with his tongue and started talking obliquely, inferentially about criminal acts he may or may not have committed, acts of sabotage, destruction of industrial sites. And I thought to myself, look, if this guy really did commit all that, he's incredibly stupid for talking about it. But he doesn't seem to be a stupid man. He seems to be very intelligent, very well read, which means he's a blowhard and a liar. And that's what, that was my conclusion upon first meeting this guy in Mark Austin's kitchen on the, what was it, the evening of October 7th, 2016, as the FBI recorded our conversation. And, uh, and so in the transcript, I, I make it clear that I think the guy's a big bullshitter and a bloviator and that there's, you know, that he's just seeking attention. But it turned out actually everything he said was true. Well, he did not, you did challenge him to show up the next day or something and he didn't show up. So No, no, no. He challenged he said to me, well, I'll take you out tomorrow morning and we'll go, quote unquote, commit felonies together. And I was like, I was like, no, nah, man, I'm not going to do that because it's bullshit. So instead we got drunk and I slept late. But it turns out he was very, very serious about going out the next morning to commit felonies. And from there, the story spins out into, or rather it backtracks to McRae's biography and his um, how he came to this militant stance about industrial civilization, how he studied, how he became sort of a doomer with respect to climate change and his reading of climate data. And, you know, in many ways he's, He's right. There is, in the climate community, there is an increasing sense of doom. I mean, just the other day, just to, as an aside here, to give some context to to why certain people might react with uh, in extreme ways to the latest climate reports. Just the other day, the world average temperature, this is two days ago, the world average temperature topped two degrees centigrade above pre-industrial for the first time. For the first time. Listen. Wow. Okay, that's a really big deal. The next day, yesterday, the UN issued a report stating that it is almost a certainty, given our current emissions trajectory, that we will reach three degrees centigrade of warming by 2100, if not earlier. Now, three degrees centigrade of warming has been said to be a scenario catastrophic beyond words. A threat to civilization. A situation in which hundreds of millions of people will be will die, if not billions of people will die. Yeah, I was going to say hundreds of millions might be left. Yeah, right. I mean, so 
So early on, and this is when I say early on, I'm talking about in 2010, 2011, 2012, McRae, who had been a carpenter, he'd run a high-end carpentry business in Dallas that that failed after the the um, the financial collapse of 2008. So early on, he's reading all this stuff and seeing these reports of where we're headed. And he came to the realization that all those years of him contributing to the Democratic Party and voting for the right people and and paying his dues to the Sierra Club and the Nature Conservancy and the Wilderness Society and all these other wonderful organizations that were supposed to function as defenses against the predatory nature of industrial civilization to protect the wild and wildlife and biodiversity and wild places and open landscapes, et cetera, et cetera. He came to the realization that, wow, nothing, none of that's working. I've, I've voted for the right people. I supported the right candidates for office. For example, he's a big fan of Hillary Clinton. He loved Hillary Clinton because he said he, he claimed himself to be a feminist. And so he wanted a woman to run things. He thought maybe a woman at the top of uh, of the, the machine, the imperial machine of the United States could somehow alter its course and make things better. But he found that, you know, supporting the right candidates, giving money to the Democratic Party, et cetera, et cetera, and giving money to all these various organizations, these nonprofits, environmental and conservation nonprofits, had achieved nothing, which is absolutely correct. It has achieved nothing, <laughs> as we, we were talking earlier. <clears throat> Look at the record of how much wildlife remains on Earth. Uh, in the past 50 years, 40 to 50 years, we've lost 70% of all vertebrates, of all the, at the actual biomass of vertebrates. <clears throat> we've lost 70% of that biomass. That's a, wow, that's a, a mass slaughter, unprecedented in human history. So he sees all this data and these trends and the constant expansion of the industrial enterprise, the need for industrial civilization to suck up more and more resources, destroy more and more landscapes to feed itself. And he comes to the conclusion that industrial civilization is the enemy and that it needs to be destroyed. And so he does what little he can to make trouble for that system. So he's also influenced by uh, like Edward Abbey and the Monkey Wrench Gang, uh, Jensen. So how much is he coming up with this all is on, on his own? Oh, not hardly. No, 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 no. Ted Kaczynski part of it? No, he is not coming up with any of this on his own. This is literally, he's reading the folks that you described, Edward Abbey, who the author of The Monkey Wrench Gang, and prior to that, the author of Desert Solitaire, and, and McRae had spent a lot of time in the in the desert of the Colorado Plateau in Utah, where Edward Abbey was was based. He reads uh, Derek Jensen, who was uh, a environment an author and environmental activist who who was uh, who co founded a group called Deep Green Resistance, and the idea behind Deep Green Resistance is that. Yes, indeed, industrial civilization will never be green. It will never be sustainable. Ergo, it has to be destroyed. So McRae was uh, most certainly inspired by these various authors and texts and acting in the real world 
with those readings in mind. Yeah, absolutely. So no, he he didn't come up with this out of nowhere, man. It's a, <laughs> a, there is a tradition, sort not a tradition, but a, a history in this country going back to the 1970s with the establishment of Earth First of direct action ecological <laughs> sabotage. And I talk about that in the article as well. And that history uh, really begins with Edward Abbey's 1975 book, The Monkey Wrench Gang, which inspires then the formation of Earth First. Earth First then goes on to espouse certain methods of sabotage, of, you know, whether it be road building equipment, mining equipment, all the various machines that are necessary for, for industrial civilization to, to maintain itself. And never people though, right? It's not- No, no, and they, they, the rule is you never target people, never harm living beings. Living humans, yeah. Any living beings. Okay. You do not do no harm to life, but destroy the machines. And so that then, that militant stance then is picked up in the 90s by the Earth Liberation Front and the Animal Liberation Front. And then you have sort of the psychopathic side to it as embodied in- um, in Theodore Kaczynski, the Unabomber, who is a murderous freak, as we all know, he died recently. And I don't know why people heroize Theodore Kaczynski. I mean, this guy was, you know, a psychopath. Edward Abbey was not a psychopath. Derek Jensen, not a psychopath. Stephen Plato McRae, not a psychopath, because they all have the same stance on are the absolute stance on protecting life, human life and other than human life. I don't think you talked about Extinction Rebellion. I think of them as having this different strategy of, of like interrupting or getting in the way of, of humans, like also nonviolent as, as far as I know. But they like- well, no, hold on a second. Hold on. Sabotage is violence. It's violence against machines. So- Yes, Extinction Rebellion. So I've spent a lot of time in communication with the, with I guess, the most famous of the co-founders of Extinction Rebellion, a guy named Roger Hallam. And we've talked a lot about, about his stance that you cannot commit violence, that violence only creates, only empowers a, a authoritarian surveillance police state, and that violence because it must be enacted in secret, sabotage, for example, it creates authoritarian hierarchies within those people who are, who are manifesting the violence. Yeah. So his idea is that Extinction Rebellion will be totally open. There will be no secrets. There's no conspiracy. Their intention is simply to disrupt business as usual. You could interpret that as a form of sabotage, but technically it's not, Right. So crowding the streets of Trafalgar Square in mm -hmm. London and preventing uh, traffic from flowing and preventing people from getting to their businesses or whatever the disruption might be is not technically sabotage. Sabotage would mean uh, destroying all the SUVs in, 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 in London, which is a good idea. But, you know... Hallam, Roger Hallam, and the, and the Extinction Rebellion people are dead set against that. So that's why I didn't mention them in the article. Okay. So it's there's sort of an ecosystem of people pushing back 
or with different strategies. I'm curious what the what the motive, what, what are we trying to bring to Harper's readership? Is it, I mean, I feel like there's people are always interested in like the human side of things. They yep. want to see what the person is like. Yes. So there's something like that in here, but I think, I'm not sure, it didn't read like you're trying to galvanize the readers. I think I would bet that you wouldn't, I, all right, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say you probably don't expect much of the readers of, of Harper's. Like they're probably not going to change their lives that much. I don't expect anything of any, <laughs> anybody. <laughs> What my intention in the article was to, to show how a person, given what we know about what industrial civilization has done to Mother Nature so far and where the civilization is headed, right? given those facts, why do some people react as McCray did? That is, why did he pick up a rifle and start shooting out electrical substations that were, for example, powering gold mines and copper mines. Those are two two of the sites that he hit were power stations that were used for for uh or one actually one of the sites he hit and another that he intended to hit but got stymied from doing so were power stations, substations that provided electricity for the mining of gold and the mining of copper. So why do some people react in this extreme way? And why do others just shrug and walk away and say, meh, nothing to be done? Yeah. So I I brought up uh, in the piece, in the sort toward the end of the piece, I talk about a newly identified psychological condition called solastalgia. Solastalgia is coined by um, an Australian psychologist and thinker whose name escapes me at the moment. And it is a, it is the condition of environmental grief, the sense that, that one has lost due to environment, negative environmental changes, the solace that one once had in, in ecosystems in nature, in places that were that were familiar to you and now are unfamiliar. So for example, McCray's case, there are all sorts of ecosystems across the West that he saw transforming before his eyes due to drought, insect invasions, livestock grazing, excessive timber cutting, mining, road building, fracking, oil and gas exploration, et cetera, et cetera. So over time, you're seeing transformation of Western landscapes in a negative way. And and his grief overwhelms him. And this grief, this condition, soul nostalgia, drives him a little crazy. Because another thing I note in the article is that when prison, after his arrest in November of 2016, he spent a year in a federal psychiatric facility where he was being examined repeatedly by by therapists and psychologists, psychiatrists, et cetera, et cetera, who came to the conclusion, some of them came to the conclusion that he was mentally ill, that he had serious mental problems, such that one of them concluded he wasn't even fit to stand trial. 
No, I've spent a lot of time with the guy. I don't think he's mentally ill. I think he's extremely troubled. And he's extremely troubled for good reason. I think he's hypersensitive to the things he's seeing in the world. So hypersensitive, not appropriately sensitive. No, no, no. But what I'm saying is, is that, all right, how about this? Like he's reacting to his environment. I don't mean environment like the trees and stuff, but like- Okay, he's reacting. You're right. Maybe it's not hyper, maybe hypersensitive is the wrong word. I would say appropriately sensitive relative to the rest of us who for the most part aren't sensitive enough and who have, who have had our hearts hardened and are not open to feeling to feeling what's happening, not to not simply to understanding it intellectually and seeing the statistics, and, but to feeling what that means. You know, what does it mean to lose 70% of all vertebrates, of all vertebrate biomass, right? What does that mean? It means a world that is, in, is more impoverished than ever. You know, the world in which Homo sapiens evolved, right? We didn't evolve sitting in front of fucking screens with roofs over our head. We evolved in the wilderness. That's our home. That's the species home. And to see so much of our original home lost, paved over, turned into wasteland, polluted and toxified, I think that must hit us somewhere deeply like the Jungian subconscious, a collective unconscious, right? That must hit us hard. And, and so, but thank God, thank God, we have the screens to keep us from feeling anything. Yeah, you know about the Rat Park stuff, the experiments with the... Someone did an experiment where they put a rat in... This is like, I don't know, in the 50s maybe? And they put a rat in a cage with a little lever. If they press it, they'll get cocaine. Yes, and yes, I know the experiment. So they get the co cocaine until they die. But then they put the rats in the same setup, but in a whole rat park, like this whole lots of other rats around and things that they can do and climb up and down and do whatever rats like to do. And then they didn't keep pressing the cocaine until they until they died. And if you have a better option, you go for the better option. But So you were saying if you see everything paved over, I lived most of my life figuring the world is like this, like paved over. I, I didn't see stuff... I mean, I have seen things paved over, but just the lack of, up until recently, I think almost everyone who ever lived could walk to be in solitude in nature, a forest, the beach. And I think that gives us a respite from things. Like I ask people on my podcast all the time what nature means to them. And there's, it's freedom and it's awe and it's wonder and it's humility and it's connection. And take that, even if you don't know that someone's taking that away, without it, it's that stuff is missing. Yes, yes. There's also a factor here of landscape amnesia in the sense that if you have more and more people living in environments where there really is no natural world, such as the megacities of the world where the great majority of people will be living within the next 20 years, then they don't have any memory of lost wild places. I still suggest though that there is something in our DNA because of our evolution over the course of hundreds of thousands of years. There is something in our DNA that still 
calls to us or calls us to the natural world. And that if we see the natural world being despoiled, even though we're not experiencing it firsthand in our artificial environments, right? The artificial environment of the city, for example, of the artificial environment of, of talking to you through a screen. Even if we don't have that direct experience of nature, something in us, I believe, still hankers for that connection. Now, maybe that's complete bullshit. <laughs> I don't know. I think I would think that we're it's hardwired in. Although, if the more we're disconnected from it, see if you go to someone in who lives in a city and say they want to drill in Bears Ears or ask Alaska National Wildlife Reserve, and they like. Well, what's there? It's a, just a desert. And from their perspective, it's drill in the desert, which is meaningless. Like, oh, when you talk about what was going off on the desert, like after it, everyone thinks it's all dead and it's not, they're like, well, well let's put solar panels over it. You know, because we're not, it's not doing anything good. At, you know, it's, right. it's, it's, it's not doing anything now. So we might as well put some solar panels over it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. make it productive. <laughs> yeah. And so the alternative, so that if the choice is, well, we're going to dig there and we might lose some desert, but the gas will be cheaper for a little while. Everyone's like, well, I guess if there's no, since there's no loss, I'll take the cheaper gas price. <laughs> but that's why like, even the connection of just, even if people recognize the minimal here in Manhattan trees that are here and little bits of grass, it's worth connecting with it. And sure. then we're not so quick to lose things over there. But back to McRae, it's, it's, oh, it's, by the way, since I have the article in front, Glenn Albrecht is the Australian philosopher who came up with the term. Yes, Glenn Albrecht. That's correct. Yes. He's the guy who coined the term solastalgia. Yes. By any chance, do you know Madeline Ostrander? She, she wrote a book. She writes for The Nation, and she was on this podcast, and she writes a lot about home and the loss of home. And so she went into depth about him. Not depth, but she covered him too. Also, when you talk about the power plant, there are two things that happened immediately after reading your article. One was I went online to look up Stephen McRae and found the FBI stuff on him. So I was like, okay, not that I doubted, but I was kind of curious. And then the other was I went over here and on my blackboard over here, I did a calculation because you, you showed the megawatts of this facility. Yeah. And I, here next to my computer, you can't see it, is my, uh, the battery, the solar thing that I, you know, charge up on the roof. And it's, it's 576 watt hours. Although now I have this other one that the company that saw that I was getting media attention. So they sent me the next generation. So I have a, a little over one kilowatt hour. So I said that power plant that you mentioned, if everyone used as much power as I did. So it turns out we'd need about 20 of those for the whole country if everyone used power the way I did. And then we'd have all the power that we needed. But as it stands now, that's that was just like one little, or maybe two gold mines that had powered, not even people. Two, two gold mines, yeah. Yep. Yeah, so it's not even helping people. It's just wrecking stuff. Well, well creating, digging out. Uh, little trinkets for people to feel good about themselves. You know, I mean, if I just drape myself in gold, I feel so much better. You know, I just feel so good. Diamonds, diamonds. And yeah, finally, I can express how much I care for you 
by buying you this gold. I mean, when you think about it, it's fucking insane. Like our civilization is literally lunatic. It is lunatic to think that, <laughs> you know, gold somehow has any meaning whatsoever. You know, it's a piece of metal. Yeah, this is what the book is about. My book is like how we got to this place. And it's partly how we got to this place in terms of how empires have grown. How did we go from egalitarian freedom, democratic or you know participatory small groups to we're stuck in the system that we can't, like we see what's happening. Like we're hurling toward a cliff. Okay. So, and so an answer, a possible answer to your question is related to one of the authors that McCray and I discussed, who is Lewis Mumford. Lewis Mumford is a, one of the great social historians of the 20th century. And one of his conceptions was the mega machine. And by the mega machine, he was talking about all the various components of civilization that that form a power complex, right? And so in in our modern era, in the industrial era, it's the literally the energetic power complex, the digging out of fossil fuels and the burning of those fuels in gigantic machines that then power more machines. It's the machine of corporate hierarchy, the machine of advertising and publicity, the machine of pecuniary motivation, seeking after money, affluence seeking. All these things are interlocking components of the mega machine. But he identifies those same components in different forms, right? Having gone back all the way to the first cities. And uh, for example, the construction of pyramids in Egypt. Lewis Mumford says, well, that was also an expression of the mega machine, a gigantic power complex, harnessing enormous amounts of labor, run as an authoritarian system, controlled by technocrats, scribes, and ruthless leaders in order to create megatechnic monuments, which the pyramids are, right? Well, look at our cities today. Our cities are megatechnic monuments, and our, our culture today is controlled by technocrats and managers yeah financialocrats if financial managers and of course elected officials who uh, really s- serve the serve the machine <laughs> as uh, figureheads right i mean like like people say well we elect we elect a new president and everything's going to change no it's <laughs> just a new new figurehead to serve at the top of the machine and the machine goes on right? The machine persists. So, McRae thought to himself, hey, the mega machine is the problem. And it is the problem, right? So, what do we do about it? Well, that leads to an even bigger problem in that, right? You're talking about cutting down electricity, for example, cutting, cutting down our use of electricity. Does it- Nonetheless, even if we cut down our use of electricity, 
because we're so numerous, right, and we're used to so many, accustomed to so many comforts, we'll still need massive industrial systems to supply our energy, heat our homes, make our clothes, grow our food, distribute the food, et cetera, et cetera. So we're trapped in the mega machine. Because if you cut off the mega machine, if let's say the whole machine system were to fall apart tomorrow, billions of people would die. Because we don't have... Because the Green Revolution. We don't have any of the skill sets, right, that hunter-gatherer tribes have. Now, back to your point about why, why do we not have the same level of egalitarian organization, mutuality, and freedom that we had in hunter-gatherer, small hunter-gatherer groups. Well, it begins as, you know, if you read, read uh, Jared Diamond on this, it begins with, the, with, as we become sedentary as a species and start building towns and then cities, and then you get an agricultural, and then agriculture is established, and then you get an agricultural surplus. That surplus then allows for specialization, and hierarchies, and then a structuring of society wherein you have a higher class that has control of the food supply and that can specialize in different sectors, if you will. And thereafter, you have got kings and priestly castes and slavery and a war-making apparatus to defend the city, to defend the agricultural surplus, and an entire system based on authoritarianism and hierarchy and inequality. So in this conception, right, or in this view of human history, the, the social catastrophe really begins with agriculture, which Jared Diamond calls humanity's first and greatest mistake. <laughs> agriculture that then leads to organized life in cities. So, and, and again, this is something that, that I talked about with McRae, right? This is, this is stuff that is on his mind as well. Like what, what is a, like what is an ideal form of human society? And we talked about for example, how the government said he was uh, like a sociopathic terrorist. And he said to me, but I don't hate people. I hate machines. And that actually often, too often becomes an issue with environmental militants. You're an anti-humanist. You hate human beings. You're a misanthrope. No, I think a lot of these folks like McRae just see our present way of doing things as loathsome and hateful and productive of negative outcomes ultimately. But at the same time, these people, these militants see that, hey, you know, we could organize society in such a way that, wow, we could we could love each other and be kind and tolerant and practice equality and fair play and 
and uh, mutuality and and all those wonderful things that are forms of the biophilia, right? With which human beings are naturally invested. We are, as we were, you and I were discussing earlier before before we started the the podcast. Human beings are naturally life loving. We're biophilic. We want to love, and we want to be loved. Unfortunately, we live in a society that is necrophilic and a civilization that is death dealing. So, and again, people like McCray see that and they go a little crazy and they pick up a rifle and start shooting things or shooting machines because <laughs> they don't want to live in a necrophilic society. So I think you're trying to show the, his humanity of, I think you're commenting on our culture. Like if our culture keeps being the way it is, people like him are going to pop up. Yes. Like he's not an aberration. You're absolutely right. I was trying to humanize the guy. Absolutely. Not just humanize, but like I spent a lot of time in Washington Square Park where the meth and fentanyl and, and heroin and crack is. And I'm not there because I, I'm really curious about addiction and also like how they got there, what, what's going on. And I've had a few long conversations with a few people there. But that's a detail. The big picture is I don't see them as an aberration from our society. I just see them as a bit more acute a representation of our society. Because partly I go there because I pick up litter every day and they produce, I, I can't believe how much litter they produce. I mean, wherever they are, there's just piles of stuff all around them. But if I look at how much litter they produce, if I walk a couple blocks, if I walk a block away to one of the expensive apartments, the people in those apartments produce way more pollution, way more pollution. I mean, okay. the, while the plane is idling on the tarmac, there's more exhaust coming out the back than all of the waste that these guys are producing. It's just the, these guys, it's, they have no homes, so they're, I don't know if they have homes or not, but you know. It's just more visible. Yeah, it's more visible, but it's just, but even if I just walk into the park, the people who are, I mean, the overall, once I was walking there with my ex-girlfriend, I was like, how many people around here are carrying something that's like single-use garbage? And she looks around, she's like, oh, I'd say about 85%. Now, they will tend to put it more in garbage cans, but still, they're paying for much more. They're causing more extraction. So these, so the people in the fentanyl and the meth as compared to the people on the doof, one's legal, but in terms of their lives, it's pretty similar. And so McRae, my read is he's he's expressing frustration and futility, and he's just cornered. Like there's nowhere, there, people want to make the world a better place. And they're stymied. How can I? Everyone wants less pollution, and yet, it's really easy to pollute more, and you'll get paid a lot if you will pollute more. And if you want to pollute less, you're 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 called extreme, and you're pushed out. So he's not he's a representation not of outside of our culture, but of our culture. Not a representation. That's too abstract. I mean, he is he is a product of our culture. He's not an aberration or or something. Our culture will continue 
to produce people like that. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that he's reacting to our culture, but reacting in a way that not many people do. And that's why he's interested. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are going to be some who just give up and they just sit in their rooms and, and like in the dark and just, I don't know, drink or just cry or just play video games. Some are going to hurt themselves. Some are just going to say, I don't care. I just got to, I'm going to shut off that part of my humanity that, that cares. I'm just going to do what I can. And I'll say that I'm helping my kids through college or I'm just making, you know, I'm just helping the invisible hand go. You know, the more that I keep buying stuff, the more that'll allocate resources that people can, I, I have faith that others will solve this problem for us. Look, man, you can't judge people. Can't judge them, you know. We're all in different, I mean, except for the really, really rich. Let's say most people are trapped in the same bind we all are, right? Yeah, it's, and you're describing this bind. For example, how do you find time to go out and, I don't know, join a, a climate protest movement when you know that you'll get arrested? You got to show up for work the next day. But you got two kids and you got to make money for the kids. And you know what? You get an offer for a job in an industry that you may not like, but got to feed these kids. I mean, I've ceased judging people, man. I'm not going to judge anybody because except for like the really rich, I think they should all have their heads chopped off. But the great majority of people are just trapped and mostly- Wait, Did I sound like I was judging just to calibrate my- Oh, well, no, no, I wasn't talking about you. I'm just saying that, okay. that you know, when I'm looking around at folks who go in, you know, I don't know, who don't, who don't express any care or concern, say, for environmental issues. I used to be very judgmental, very militant. But now I'm just like, well, you know, I don't know what's going on in their lives and things are really complex and people are mostly weak and confused and fragile. Well, also, you, you talked about how we, we form this hierarchy in this machine and when a dominance hierarchy forms or an authoritarian hierarchy forms, two cultures are often going to form. At the top, there are going to be people who justify, they, they know that they're doing something that they have to sleep at night. So they're going to say, you know, if in slavery, they're going to say, oh, they're, they're not human. You know, we're, we're civilizing them. Something that we're helping them in some way. The people at the bottom of the hierarchy, which is everyone else, they're, if they can revolt, they might try to revolt. But if they feel like the, the, the chances of success are too low, that it's not worth it, then they're going to create a culture of helplessness. Well, in, in our case, it's helplessness. They're going to convince themselves why they they can't do anything different which is why like religion is the opiate of the masses it, it's oh i'll have in a future life things will be better for me and worse for them mm -hmm. and that's why i can stand this this life I, I can let things be the way in this life or in today's world it's what i do doesn't matter only governments and corporations can make a difference on the scale that we need and that way people can say well see i tried but there's nothing i can do so the, these two cultures generally form. Yeah. Well, I think there's also a, a middle ground, the middle middle management, if you will, or the 
the professional classes that serve the upper classes and who are invested in the maintenance of the status quo because their income and their their privilege depends on serving that system. So, you know, you're always going to have a bureaucracy that serves the, the super rich and that maintains that system. But I would just add that to that hierarchy you were describing, you know. Okay. Yeah, so it's not it's not one it's not binary. Yeah. And there's also I think what I think one of the big things about why it's interesting to learn these things is when you see it then you can exit it. If you're in it and you don't know it, you just think that's the way the world is. Right. Wrong. But I mean exiting is sort of uh can be a very powerful thing like for example, how do you exit the food system or how do you exit the energy supply system I mean how do you exit exit you can go live in a cave and live off grid make your own clothes grow your own food but how many people can do that so it's kind of hard to exit the system I think we really are trapped in in the mega machine and that's why I mentioned the green revolution and you can sort of envision exiting sure in your wildest fantasies but actually making it happen well that's a whole different ballgame well i'll be curious your thoughts so to put in context what i'm about to say i mentioned him that hopefully about to finish the latest draft of my book coming up and i'll be curious your thoughts on that because i i get into that we don't have a whole lot of time and i there was your other article on neo-colonialism and that's very interesting to me too. I don't know if we have time for it or not, but another part of unsustainability, if you're living unsustainably, it means that you don't have the resources to survive, which means you have to get them from somewhere else, right. which means colonialism, imperialism, colonialism. Well, imperialism, and if you start taking their land, then it's colonialism. And then if you start taking their labor, it's generally slavery. Yeah. And it seems pretty clear to me what's going on. Like, unsustainability requires imperialism and imperialism is almost always going to result in colonialism and so you write about that and you you're very clear about that and oh, man i i forget if when we were when we were recording or not when he said what difference are my articles making i'm not sure how to quantify that but you're nailing it no one else is writing that i don't see other people writing oh yeah there are lots there are other people writing about it sure I mean, okay, there's less is more. So what's his name? Heckle. And there's a few. Jason Hickman. There's not a lot. And they're not making the mainstream. I guess, Maybe his book was a big bestseller. I'm not sure. Jensen's Breaking Lines, Lies. Is... Oh, okay, so you're not the only one. But I feel like you're one of the more, one of the most mainstream. You're not mainstream, but you're reaching the mainstream. Harper's is mainstream, right? I'm able to sucker editors into publishing these, publishing these articles. That's what I did. Somehow I'm able to trick them into publishing articles that, that otherwise don't appear in the mainstream. Yeah, but I'm hardly the only one writing about these issues. But in the context here with regard to neocolonialism, I was writing about a protest at a place called Thacker Pass in Nevada led by Paiute and Shoshone tribes people who were taking a stand against a lithium mine there 
And uh, the lithium mine in Thacker Pass, and it's now actually in the process of being built, will destroy the ecosystem there and at the same time destroy land sacred to the Paiute and Shoshone. So I was writing about how this is a great example of neo-colonialism. A gigantic corporation supported by government goes into public lands for the greater good of the green build out of, you know, renewable energies, lithium being a key component of batteries for electric cars and batteries for as a backup for the intermittency of solar and wind power in whatever new energy grid we're going to construct. So here you have the same old process of expropriation of land, destruction of native lifeways and sacred lands, despoliation, pillage, plunder, leaving behind a, a, a biological wasteland. So that's what this lithium mine is going to do to Thacker Pass. Thacker Pass will become a wasteland. And... Okay, but it's this is neocolonialism in service of green technology, right? So that makes it good, right? People, it's once you see it, it's like we people today, the most anti colonial when they're looking at the past, they will look at them, they, they don't see themselves today driving the system that never went away. Right, right. Well, you know, people want to keep on driving their cars, speaking of driving, but they want to be able to drive while under a halo of climate virtue. So if they can drive a Prius or whatever it might be, an EV, and not be emitting any carbon while doing so, then, well, Packer Pass must be sacrificed. My point being that no matter how you cut it, industrial civilization is not earth friendly, it's not environmentally friendly, it's not ecologically sane, and it never will be. We're not going to green this civilization. Anybody who says otherwise is lying. That was the purpose of my article about neocolonialism and, and this lithium mine at Thacker Pass. Just stop lying about like how we're going to make this this civilization, the mega machine, green. Just please stop. It's just a an insulting falsehood. Yeah, and if you make it more efficient, everything that's been achieving so far, it'll achieve faster. No, well, that's called Jevons' paradox. Jevons' paradox states that when you make something more efficient, you will use more of it. Yeah, but I have a new way of putting that is... To pull a Eli Whitney, because there's various examples of it in history. You know, Jevons talked uh, the the Watt steam engine would be an example where it was more efficient and coals went up. You know, down per each use, but more uses by more people for more things. Right. But the big one for me was the the Eli Whitney's cotton gin was supposed to reduce labor. Well, the people who bought the cotton gins were the plantation owners. They didn't want, they didn't care about less labor. They cared about more cotton, more profits. So it went from a couple hundred thousand slaves to four million. 
with something that was supposed to reduce labor. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. So Tesla, so I would say Elon Musk is pulling on Eli Whitney. Because Jevons Paradox sounds like it's too complex. Like that appeals to geeks and nerds like me. You know, people who read economics. To, I don't know, pull it in Eli Whitney is like to achieve the opposite of what you're saying, whether you intended it or not. Because I don't think Eli Whitney wanted to increase slavery. That was not his goal. He was just a tinkerer. He just wanted to make something a little more, a little better. Well, the bottom line is that the system is set up to always accelerate and never slow down. And that's a problem too, you know. Why are we not talking about reducing the number of vehicles overall, whether electric or internal combustion engine? Yeah, and reducing the roads. That's never part of this. Or reducing the number of roads or reducing the size of the cities or reducing the size of the human population or lowering GDP in those countries that are already rich and don't need increased GDP. There's never any discussion of that, ever. There's always, always the mode of acceleration. It must be faster, bigger, and more. That seems to be the ethos of the of the culture and the civilization. Talk about not sustainable. I mean, that's... Faster, bigger, more is going to go nowhere. It's going to go right into a brick wall. Yeah. In our lifetime, most likely. So... Yeah, and wealth. And that's what this guy McCray... Again, McCray... These are all things that he and I discussed in the course of my putting together that article. And over the many years when we were uh, corresponding while he was in federal prison, you know, these are things on his mind. So what it amounted to with him was sort of a twisted Socratic dialogue. Are you in touch with him? Of course. Yeah, I talk to him all the time. How do you like the article? Oh, it was very good. He was very pleased. Is he still? Is the FBI still trailing him? Is he still probably? They're probably still. They're probably still monitoring my communications. Yeah. Oh yeah. What's it like for you to have now that you got a file? I don't care. I got nothing to hide. Okay. They're not doing anything illegal. So. Yeah, I do advocate for the record that we really that McCray is absolutely right. We should chop the heads off the Fortune 500 CEOs. That would go a long way towards changing our society for the better. I, I'm, I'm pausing and I'm, I'm stuttering because I want to dive into things that would, like I could easily see a five-hour conversation here. And, but I think we have to wait for future. We can still talk for a little while. I, I just have some, I have to get back to writing, you know. <laughs> so chopping off their heads, or back a step when you said the machine... You were talking about the machine, and I I see the machine as the a manifestation of our of of our values. And if we don't change our values, if we could dismantle the machine, but everyone still felt the way that they felt, we'd recreate the machine. Yes, exactly. Uh, but but see, you're you're in in a um, I, what, I guess that's a a conundrum or. Paradox. Be phrase a, uh, because you think about it, is you a paradox? Not a paradox. No, but, um, and I'm not sure of the exact phrase, but but we won't dismantle the machine. We won't make any any move towards that without first changing our values. Because once you change the values, then you'll recognize that that 
that the mega machine is the problem. Yeah. Uh, so how do you change those values? Wow. Then you're into really tricky territory because you have a whole system set up to mold values, right? I mean, for example, I've got two kids. What do they want to do all the time? They want to do what they see the adults doing. What do they see the adults doing? Staring at their phones. That's what, they, that's what the adults teach them. The adults teach them that the thing to do is to stare at your phone. Okay. It's a value system being inculcated into the children just by the very air they breathe. Literally, the atmosphere is suffused with the idea that, hey, sitting there swiping at a, a handheld computer <laughs> instead of interacting with your fellow uh, human beings is the right thing to do. It's totally normal. So these are huge problems, seemingly insurmountable. Sometimes I feel like I am uh, trying to raise children while having an entire society, culture, civilization conspiring against reason, love, curiosity, and freedom of thought. Like literally the, the society is conspiring against my children having a good education. <laughs> a sound, spiritual, psychologically healthy education. Because they know that they want, the kids want to stare at the phones and stare at all the junk on the phones and all the, the idolatrous images that race on the slipstream of the phone and the screens. So... How do you change that value system? Just to take one, one value system. The value system that says, hey, it's great to be on your phone all the time. Or how do you change the value system that says that when you make more money, you shall eat more meat? Right? Because <laughs> we're eating more meat than ever because people, as people get to slightly wealthier, they want to eat meat. Why? Well... We are told that it is better to eat meat because of the protein content, whatever it might be, it's because of a cultural predilection for, for meat, a value system. There is a value system, uh, an especially toxic value system in wanting to travel, right? Tourism, <laughs> seeing the world, travel, travel, travel. It accounts for between 8 and 12% of greenhouse gases. Travel is incredibly polluting and wasteful. One of the most destructive activities we can engage in. It does, I now have to interject. And it doesn't even achieve what people think. Like, I was talking to a friend about this, and he said a friend of his went from New York to LA. And in the high trip, he took less than 800 footsteps. So if you just walk 801 steps in any direction, you've actually traveled more than this guy if you actually consider your motion. And I can tell you that right. in that 3,000-mile trip, 
he went to exactly the same culture. Yeah, New York and LA are slightly different. But if he goes not to not really, no. <laughs> yeah. So the point the point being is that these are value systems that that we're surrounded with. It's the air we breathe. It's the water we drink. So very difficult to change value systems, especially when those value systems are extremely profitable for powerful sectors of society that then create brainwashing and propaganda mechanisms for perpetuating those values. So again, consider travel. We're bombarded with images of all these paradisical destinations abroad. As well as- And we are made to feel bad if we stay at home, Yeah, you loser. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. You're still a loser if you're saying, wow, I've been to 37 countries. How many times have I talked to people who say that shit to me? They're like, I visited 139 countries or whatever. And it's like, yo, and what? And what? You're still a fucking asshole. <laughs> you know, so. Well, in today's world, that that is evidence of that because that's not travel. That's, that's I mean, it's, it you know, it's the mainstream definition of travel, yes, but in terms of what travel used to bring to one's life of, I guarantee that, Virtually all of that was to places that have been homogenized, and he's not learning what the he's not visiting the place. He's like going to the zoo. It's like going to the zoo and saying you went to calling a zoo some substitute for it. Doesn't matter. Look, travel, tourism, whatever you want to call it. In this day and age, with the power systems that we use for travel, and the incredibly wasteful, polluting systems that supply travelers. It all amounts to the same thing, ecological destruction. So you want to call it travel, you want to call it tourism, whatever. It doesn't make a difference. Well, I'm looking at it from the perspective of the person doing it. They're not getting what they think they're getting. Like the, how many people I, I've met- There's some people, hold on a second. Some people travel and they spend a long time in another country and they have a transformative experience and it's wonderful. It's great. Fine. All, all I'm saying is that uh, if we talk about sustainability, none of it is sustainable. That's all I'm saying. None of it is sustainable. None of it is is good for anybody. <laughs> for none of it is good for for the carbon sink, for the climate system, for for those of us who have lungs and a beating heart. For those who don't like carcinogens in our bodies. No, it's but it's good. It, look, some people get incredible spiritual psychological benefits from travel. Sure, it's fine. I'm just saying, you know, it's on a mass scale, the way we conduct travel today, I mean, for example, I mean, just I, I went to Maine recently, drove to Maine, drove, you know, my carbon guzzling car from the Catskill Mountains to Maine, eight hour drive. Along that way, I had, you know, I stopped for coffee and this, that, and takeout food. And what is the takeout food? Well, the coffee cup comes in a fucking plastic container that gets thrown out. And then the food to go comes in plastic containers with plastic spoons and plastic forks and all that's thrown out. Waste, waste, waste. The whole goddamn trip was just waste from one end to the other. So there you go. That's that's it. It's just waste and carbon consumption. I went there for work, right? And as a journalist, I went there to interview somebody and to check out some, uh, to do some site visits. Okay, so I, that's how I justify it, right? But nonetheless, the whole trip is incredibly wasteful and polluting and destructive. The people that you're talking about that get these, um, um, when someone has a wonderful experience, that wonderful experience can be gotten with a bicycle and a tent. 
I'm not saying people are going to do it, but they can have that experience. I'm not. Yeah, or, or not. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not. <laughs> I don't know what people can get. So from a bicycle in a tent, maybe they'll just be miserable. You know? Maybe they want luxury, like they've been told on the screen to want. <laughs> y- you know what I'm saying, man? You, you can't, like, they're. I guess to say to people, you, you'll have a better experience on a bicycle in a in a tent. Uh okay. Well, I'm saying that we can get the values that we can meet our most important human values without polluting. Yeah, absolutely. Just stay home. Well, I mean, you can communicate, connect with people in your community. You can. There you go. There you go. Stay home. Connect with your community. Do something in your community. But back to McRae. Yeah. He, so you're asking about whether I see him, uh, talk to him. Yeah, I talk to him routinely. He's living in a little cabin in the Gila National Forest in southwestern New Mexico, way out there in the middle of nowhere. And he occasionally call me up and say, oh, I just went camping for a week. Talk about a guy who spends most of his time in a tent and on a bicycle, he he spends he lives on his bicycle, and spends a fair amount of each week when he's not working in his tent, alone communing with nature. <laughs> so, and sometimes he'll, when he has access to a computer, he'll write me these uh, kind of wildly phrased emails describing his encounters with the natural world, whether it be snot stars or blizzards high on, a, on one of the peaks of the Gila or the sigh of pines in the breeze or the sound of elk bugling and so on. Kind of lovely stuff. So he's sending me very, very beautiful. Some of his letters to me are very beautiful. Very beautiful, very, very poetic. I was going to say, son of elk, breaking windows on people driving the cars. Yeah, that too, that too. And one, one last thing of how about the the readers and the editors? Have you gotten feedback from readers, or have the editors told you if it's if the article has had made impressions on their? Uh, I've gotten not much of a response to this article, strangely. Because it's a touching article. I mean, it's it's thoughtful, I guess. Respectful, but um, reflective, introspective, thought-provoking. Yeah. No, but there's not, not been much response. But I have to say, yeah, this this phone call, or this recording has, has gotten me seeing parts of it that I hadn't before, of how much it was also about our culture and society. When, I, when people walk with me in the city, I'm picking up litter, and I start, they hear me getting down about the litter. But I'm not. I'm talking up about the beauty of nature. But the nature isn't immediately visible. But it's still about beauty, even though it sounds like an art. I get disgusted by the litter, and I also get confused. Not confused, but like I, I, I try to understand the mindset of someone who litters. Yeah. And each piece of litter has its own unique situation of like how it happened to get right there. And but really, so the the part about the humanity side is like I'm trying to understand humans better, and the part about 
the litter is about me understanding nature more. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. You pick up litter. It's. Uh, I do the same thing up here in the Catskills, but on a much smaller basis because there's a lot less litter. But out there in the in the woods on the trails, sometimes you'll find oh hikers who are not respectful and leave their leave their trail of their spore of refuse, and so I clean it up. But that's a wonderful thing to be doing that. Because it is, you know, I mean, the city, for as much as I, you know, sort of, I guess, loathe would be the right word, the habitat that human beings have mostly chosen for themselves, that is, places of concrete, steel, and glass, cities, it's kind of ugly habitat. Nonetheless... It gets even uglier when covered in trash, <laughs> right? So, you know, like, uh, what was it, Crosby, Stills, Nash? If you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. Okay. So it's like, <laughs> you got to love the place that you are, so. Well, I'll think of you when I'm picking up litter today. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll think of you when I'm picking up litter here in the Catskills. That's funny. I, what people email me a lot, or not a lot, but I get uh, something I respond to people a lot is I'm honored that trash reminds me of you, reminds you of me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. Well, shall we call it a day? Yeah. One last question is if uh, you mentioned one of the pieces you're working on, any other, anything to share of what's coming up? Oh, yeah. So I'm working on a big piece for The Intercept about hydropower in uh, Canada. And it's environmental and ecological consequences, which are huge. I work on a piece about wild horses in the American West. Uh, I'll be doing an interview with RFK Jr. about his environmental record and his environmental platform as he runs for president. I'm uh, doing an investigation of trophy hunting in Africa. So these are all forthcoming articles. Oh, man. This sound like... Got checked reading, but things I want to read. Well, Christopher Ketchum, thank you very much. All right, man. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.